Today we're going to talk about who's in charge. So let me see if you recognize this phrase from your life, uh, and maybe it brings up some memories of things that have happened or you've done. Uh, there's a phrase that I used often in, in college. It's, it, it went like this. It's better to ask forgiveness than permission, right? You guys know that phrase, huh? You've used it once or twice. Usually when, when that phrase comes up, it means you're about to make some bad decisions, right? It means that you're probably, you probably already know the answer if you were to ask permission and so you've decided against that. We went to a college where there were a lot of rules. And so we use that phrase a lot with one another. Unfortunately, there was not much forgiveness from the college dean's office. So that wasn't really a, an option. But I remember basically we used it because we thought the college rules were kind of dumb. And we thought we knew better. So we thought we would, you know, find ways around them. Find ways to do what we thought we should do. And uh, there was always somebody, if, whenever you get, you can imagine a group of 18 and 19-year-old college guys getting together and imagining, what are we going to do? What should we do with our weekend? What should we do with our night? These are not always brilliant ideas that come out of that session, right? But somebody in that group is always the, the rule keeper, the, the cautious one, the, the one that says, you know, I don't know if we're allowed to do that. Is that against the rules? Who should we ask to see if, if, if we're allowed to do that or not? And the rest of us would turn and say, listen, it is better to ask forgiveness than permission. And that was the end of the discussion and on we went. And some of my best memories of college followed that discussion, you know, some of the things. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say, uh, you know, man, I was such a, a, a problem in, in college. It's not really a confessional. It's just we all know this mindset. And the mindset underneath of it is, we should be in charge, not someone else. The mindset is, yes, there's somebody who's made some rules and instructions and boundaries and I'm supposed to stay inside of them, but I would rather be in charge of me than have someone else in charge of me. Can you identify with that? I think that is just inherent in human beings. It's born into us. I think I could decide for myself what I'm going to do rather than listen to someone else tell me that I can't do what I think will make me happy or feel good about myself or find some peace in my life. Don't tell me what I can't do. I know what's best for me and I should have the freedom to do whatever I want to do. Instead of submitting to people who are in charge, whether that's kids at home, whether that's at work with your boss, whether that's at school with teachers, whether that's with local law officers or government officials or whoever, we all think this just somewhere inside of us, it's hard to shake, this idea that life would go better if I were in charge. And so it's better to ask forgiveness than permission is my mantra so that I can act like I can be in charge. And all of these other losers who don't know how, what good life is can get out of my way. I won't even bother to find out if it's okay. I'll just take charge of my life and go on and do my thing. That is, I believe, the way that most people believe life works best. I would say some people, Christians included, even as we celebrate Christmas, think that's why Jesus came, because he came to set us free. And freedom means, according to our culture, not according to Scripture, but according to our culture, freedom means I get to do whatever I want. Isn't that what freedom means in our world today? 
We aspire to that idea. Freedom means that I can do whatever I want with my money. I can do whatever I want with my time. I can do whatever I want in my relationships. It doesn't matter if others think that what I'm doing is wrong. They should mind their own business. That's what we think freedom is. And some people even believe that's why Jesus came. But what they read this morning in Luke 2 includes a word that really challenges that idea. And I hope that it challenges us today as we sit here as well. It is a word that we're really familiar with and it comes right at the start. Right at the start when the angel announces it, Jesus came to bring us salvation. His birth is good news. And there are some names that are included in this. And in those names are summed up different aspects of what it means to follow Jesus. Over the the Christmas season here, we have been looking at the names of Jesus. We looked at some of the most popular. We looked at the name Jesus, meaning God saves and, and he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was born to be a savior. Last week, we looked at the name Christ, also Messiah. Those are the same term. Christ or Messiah, the promised one, the one that we wait for. And I would say we could go on this series for a long time. Because there are so many names of Jesus in Scripture. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the good shepherd. He is the word. He is the son of God. He is the alpha and omega. He is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. He is the prince of peace. He is the lion of Judah. He is the lamb of God. And we could just go and go and go and keep looking at what these terms, these names mean about Jesus. But this morning, we want to turn our attention to the second most common name used for Jesus in Scripture, the name Lord. And we often use that. We come to the house of the Lord and we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we use that name all the time. I want you to hear it again in Luke chapter 2 as the angel announces verses 10 to 12. It says this, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, or the Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. We call Jesus Lord all the time, and especially at Christmas. You will, if you're listening to Christmas music this week, often hear the term Lord. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Um, Jesus, Lord at thy birth, right? Uh, uh, Come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. The little Lord Jesus, asleep on the head. Like we have all of these Christmas songs include this name, this term that we use all the time. And the angel at his birth says, there's a baby who's born who is a savior. This baby is Christ, the promised one, and he is the Lord. The word Lord, the the name Lord, is both a title and a name. Kind of like when you're in school and you say, oh, teacher, teacher. Their their name's not actually teacher, right? It's what they do. It's their title. But you're using it as a way to talk to them. Uh, You get pulled over by a cop. You could say officer, such as Like you're using their title as a name. That's kind of what Lord is. And the name Lord has a very simple meaning. It means master. Ultimately, the one who is in charge of me. Calling someone Lord meant recognizing their right to tell you what to do. That they are rightfully in charge and you are not 
in charge. That is what the word Lord means. In the New Testament, it is a divine title connecting Jesus as God Almighty in human flesh. And we see this idea throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And so New Testament Greek, the word is kurios. And that word occurs over 700 times. And it has a very straightforward def definition. Master, owner. And underneath of that is the idea of might, someone with power, someone who has the strength or the power of position to be in charge of you, someone who has authority over you. And so when we address someone as Lord, we address them in that way, the power to enforce their rule. The Old Testament uses the, the, new, the English word Lord to translate basically two ideas. One is the proper name for God. Yahweh. And as you read your Old Testament, if you've ever taken time to read it, looking at like more carefully at it, whenever you see the word Lord, and it is in all capital letters, that is the name for God, Yahweh. They are translating the name for God as Lord. Or if you see it normally with the capital L and then the little O-R-D, it's the name Adonai. That's the Hebrew term Adonai. And that means master, owner, the one who's in charge, the one who has power and authority. So calling Jesus Lord in the New Testament equates him to the God of Abraham in the Old Testament. But it also says he has the right to tell us what to do. When I say Lord Jesus, when I start a prayer with Lord, it changes my prayer, doesn't it? If he's in charge and I'm talking to someone who's in charge of my life, then when I pray Lord I talk differently to someone who's in charge of me than someone that I'm telling them what they ought to do, right? The name Lord has that behind it. It means he is in charge of my life. And I'm going to tell you this morning, that is essential to what it means to be a Christian. You cannot live as a Christian without putting Jesus in charge of your life. Now, I know that might be bad news for some people. You've called yourself a Christian. You put that title on you. Like, I'm fine with Jesus. Everything's good. I like Jesus. He's cool. I go to church every now and then and whatever. Like, you have no problem with Jesus. And you think that makes you a Christian. But I'm going to tell you this. If you put your faith in Jesus, he becomes your Lord. And if he becomes your Lord, it means he's in charge of you. It means you are absolutely supposed to be following him. He is supposed to tell you what to do, and you're supposed to say, yes, that's what I will do. That is the norm for Christians. And I want to show you just a couple passages before we're done today. Acts chapter 10 is where I'm going to go next. Because this idea of Jesus being Lord and in charge is not just an empty title. As the early Christians used this, it had power, it had punch to it. So Peter here in Acts 10, very early in Christianity, he's talking to someone who seemed to be too far away from God for God to ever save. A man named Cornelius, who was a centurion. He was not a Jew. He was not from the people of God. And yet somehow God saved him anyway. Right? So Peter's going to talk to this guy, and as he talks to him, he describes Jesus as Lord of all. And then he gives two reasons why that matters. So I want to read it to you, then we'll talk about it. So Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 43, it says this, Then Peter began to speak, 
I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. He's talking to Cornelius and like a little bit incredulous that Cornelius has been accepted as part of the family of God. God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout uh, the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, how he went around doing good, healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses to whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach the gospel, or to preach to people, and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So, Peter goes, and then after this, the Holy Spirit comes and fills these people who were on the outside looking in and includes them. And so Jesus is Lord of all. The premise of this is that he's speaking to someone who is powerful, a centurion. Someone who knows how to give orders. Someone who knows the importance of obeying the person in charge. Because when you go out to war, if you're the person in charge and you give an order and the people don't follow it, you lose. You probably die. It's really important that the one who is the master, the one who has the authority, is able to be followed by those who follow him. So this is a man who has importance. He is a man who has power. He probably has no real needs or problems in his life. He's probably well taken care of. He has stature and standing. He has no problems, but he understands the need to know who you answer to. And in some way, he has decided that he answers to his creator. Even not being from God's people. He decides that he answers to his creator, that that is his Lord. And because of that, God sends Peter to him to share the rest of the story about Jesus. And then Peter says to him, Jesus is Lord of all. And he gives two reasons why that matters. And I want to talk about them with you this morning before we get through. First of all, he says, he is Lord of all. And because of that, he is the judge of the living and the dead. That means this, he is Lord of all and everyone answers to him. You answer to Jesus. You may not like that. You may vote no on that, but your vote doesn't matter. He is Lord of all, whether you grant it or not. He has power and authority over your life. Today, we push against that idea, but I would say throughout most of history, mankind has understood that I don't actually have as much say in my life as I want, and that's just the way it is. I'm not in charge the way I want to be, and that's the way it is. We've kind of convinced ourselves we're out of that because we've progressed so much, but here's the truth. Jesus is still Lord of all, and he is the judge of the living and the dead. And at his birth, he's called Lord, meaning that this baby is exactly God, and he is the one who will judge every single one of us in this room. He will decide our eternal destiny. You're hoping he grades on a curve. You're hoping that you have enough good to outweigh your bad. It's not how it works. 
You don't fool him. He doesn't play games. He's not doing a shell game and seeing if you're tricky enough to outsmart him. He doesn't care about your resume because your resume includes all your regret, all your shame, all your mess-ups, all your oversights, every bit of it. And who hasn't done that? Who hasn't messed up? Who isn't a mess? Has anybody here got their life all together? You know, one of the big sins is pride. You know that, right? So even in my confidence, I wind up destroying. Jesus is Lord of all. And on the day of judgment, we will stand before him. He is Lord of all. That's one thing it means. The other thing it means is this. And this is really crazy. He's both the one who judges us and the one who pays the price for the wickedness he must condemn. Peter says, you know the story, Cornelius. Jesus died and rose again. And he says he did that so that we could receive forgiveness through his name. That is an astounding miracle of grace. Because people who have power and authority don't die. They kill. They put other people to death. They don't die. But this one who was born as Lord lays down his life. He comes and he stands in our place, dying to save us so that on judgment day, which is inevitable, which no one will escape, we will stand before him. And instead of standing before him, trying to measure up, in the name of Jesus, we can stand there forgiven and clean. Connecting Jesus as Lord to his death on a cross is unbelievable, but it tells us that he's this unique Lord, this Lord of all, and he comes to save us. By the way, his death and resurrection are not a fairy tale. If you believe anything about ancient history, I will tell you that the death and resurrection of Jesus is more well-attested than any event in ancient history about any Caesar, about anything about uh, Alexander the Great and the Greek empires, about any Egyptian history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best attested event in ancient history. And so we're not just imagining this. This happened, and Peter tells us why it happened. It happened so that all who would believe in him could receive forgiveness in his name. So that the story of Christmas is about the birth of the Lord, the one who is in charge, the one who will judge every person, and the one who came to save all who would believe. That's why Christmas is a celebration. That's why we sing and we put up lights and we give presents and we stop working and all that because we were doomed. And now we can be saved because of the birth of Christ the Lord. I want to go one other place where we hear about Christ being the Lord. It's a very famous one in Philippians chapter two. That was Peter. This is Paul. And Paul says some of those powerful words about the name of Jesus in Philippians two. They're probably pretty familiar. It says this in verse nine. Therefore, God highly exalted him, exalted him to the highest place, giving him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What it says is he came and humbled himself before this passage. He came and humbled himself. And therefore, because he humbled himself, because he died in our place, therefore, God has highly exalted him, exceedingly exalted him, lifted him up beyond any others. The same word is used in the Septuagint in Psalm 97. You are exalted far above all gods. You are the most high over all the earth. That's in contrast to Jesus choosing to make himself nothing and humble himself. 
So Paul says, yes, Jesus left glory, humbled himself. Now he returns triumphant to glory. And he has a name that is above all names. And he tells us what that means. It means that one day, there is a day coming, a day of judgment, a day of the end, where every knee will bow. That means every single one of you will bow the knee to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And every tongue will acknowledge Every tongue will say, Jesus is Lord. His magnificence, his excellence, his power, his superiority is so great that even those who rebel against him will one day bow before him. Now, will that save everybody? No. But there is such absolute certainty to it that it has that kind of effect. So what does that mean for us? Well, Paul doesn't stop there. And this is where I want us as Christians, I want us to take a look at Christmas and our celebration of Jesus the Lord. Because Paul goes on from there and says, well, then therefore, verse 12, therefore, okay, because Jesus is Lord, every tongue will confess that he's Lord. Because this is inevitable, because this is ultimate, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul says, therefore, Jesus is Lord. And one day everyone will acknowledge it. It is so absolute that everyone will say, yes, Jesus is Lord. Because of that, therefore, obey there is no other legitimate response to Jesus being Lord than to say, Lord, what should I do? How should I live? You tell me. I hope that your prayer life includes a lot of questions for him rather than a lot of like, would you and do this and can you do the direction? Because if he's Lord, maybe I should know what he wants me to do. Maybe it means that I get into the word of God and I find out how I'm supposed to live. What's right? What's wrong? What needs to change? Therefore, it is the broad application. If we don't live out the Lord, Jesus is Lord of my life, then our words are empty. If he's in charge, if he's our master, if he truly rules over all, that's the only reasonable response. So today, my challenge to us as believers is Jesus Lord. Is he your Lord? And if he is, does your life show it? Are you growing in following Jesus? The next verses have been scrutinized to discuss, oh, work out your salvation. Does that mean a child of God who's born again can be unborn? It's not really what Paul's talking about. What he says is this. If he's your Lord, live like it. He's done a work inside of you. Now work it out into your life, right? Let it take over everything. Let it make your choices different. Let it... Let it Change the way that you live. Let it change the way you think, the way you see your life. In other words, this. Right now, if God came to you, let's say tonight, you were laying in your bed, Jesus showed up inside of your bed with a little notepad. Hey, I got some questions. 
You're like, okay, after you get past the heart attack, right? Like, okay. Jesus says, listen, I know there are some things in your life you don't like. What would you like me to change? Would you have anything that you could add to his list of things that might be nice to change? Of course we do, right? But what if those things that you wish were different are an evidence that Jesus is Lord and you are not? What if they are a mark of ownership that he's in charge of you? And your response to them is your response to his lordship more than it is to your circumstances. This is how Jesus being Lord changes how we live. Will we surrender to him being in charge? Will we live like he's in charge or will we live like we wish we were in charge? Let me get a little more specific. Is he the Lord of your money? Is he the Lord of your career? Is he the Lord of your reputation? Is he the Lord of your marriage or your parenting? Is he the Lord of your time? Is he the Lord of your entertainment? Like where is Jesus being in charge that's not shown up in your life? You're like, well, this is mine. I'll make my own choices. I'll do my own thing. If we're believers and he's my Lord, then I have to surrender it all to him, don't I? So as we celebrate Christmas, this is a question to bring to bear as we hear the word Lord over and over again. Is he? There are powerful implications to calling Jesus our Lord. Paul says, there are two places you can look to see if he's effectively Lord of your life. Now, where would you think he would ask us to look? Is Jesus Lord of your life? Okay, a lot, a lot of things come to mind about here, there, where. But Paul says, okay, so if, if Jesus is Lord, what you're believing, the New Testament over and over says what you believe produces fruit. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is, the works of the flesh are. What you believe, what you're trusting in produces fruit. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 7. A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad. So there's the idea that what you live and what you believe and what you focus on produces results in your life. It produces fruit in your life, okay? So what Paul says is, listen, if we want to be people who live like Jesus is Lord, it's going to change how we approach life. It's going to change the tone of our life. And so where does it change it? Well, he says, verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Yikes. Do everything without grumbling. Wow. That, I, I wasn't expecting that, right? Because if Jesus is Lord, if he ultimately wins, if he's in charge, if he's Lord of all, he's in charge of all of it, then what am I grumbling about? Right? Well, you don't know what happened in my life. I'm not talking about being sad or grieving a loss. I'm not talking about the human response in, in a moment, whatever. I'm talking about a pattern, and Paul is too, about the fruit that comes out on a regular basis. If Jesus is Lord, why would I grumble or complain? If he's in charge of my life, me grumbling is like, I wish I, wish I were in charge instead of you. He says, if we would live like that, we would shine like lights in this world. Those who are surrendered to the Lord should live in gratitude, not with complaining. Not just when things are going smoothly, but only, always. In fact, he says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, it's a reference to Old Testament sacrifices where you would take some precious wine or something and you would pour it out on the offering and you would give it to, you would surrender it to the Lord. You would, would give it to him and you would have no benefit from it for yourself. Even if I'm being poured out. They did that a lot in pagan sacrifices too, pouring out drink offerings on the altar. 
Paul says, even if I am being poured out like that, and the implication of that is being poured out, he's probably talking, even if I'm bleeding from my beatings. That's probably what he's saying, the, the way the words are there. He's probably talking about blood. Even if I bleed to death from my suffering, what does he say? Even then, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. That's how serious Paul thinks the lordship of Jesus is. Don't complain, but instead find joy. And then he says in verse 18, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's in prison. He's not living the high life. He doesn't have a say about where he goes or what kind of bed he has or, or whether he has freedom or not or what kind of food he's going to get. Prisons back then, we're not talking about like human rights kind of things. There's all kinds of human rights violations going on in prisons back then. Paul says, so I rejoice. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. I don't grumble. I don't complain. I say, God, you're in charge of my life. Wherever you take me, whatever it means, wherever I go, whatever this day holds, you're the Lord of it. So I trust you. My faith is in you. I'm going to give this day to you. I'm going to live it like Jesus is Lord. It's a powerful truth. It's one that we celebrate at Christmas. It's a truth that can change our lives. I would say today, if you're sitting here and you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do it before you even get up out of your seat. Because we don't know when our judgment day comes. We don't know when we leave this world. But what we do know, we will stand before him. If you don't stand before him by faith in him, then you stand before him in condemnation, in judgment. And he didn't want that for you, so he came to save you. I would invite you to receive Jesus today. Change it now. Receive him, give him your life, and he will give you eternal life. But believers, I think as Christmas comes, it's, it's a day we celebrate for good reason, but it should change us every time we celebrate it. And today I'm saying to you, Jesus is Lord, and that has meaning, and that has challenge, and we should live like it does. We should let it get into us and search us and change us because He is Lord. Are we people who complain and grumble? Is there joy in my life consistently? Are there places that I am not obeying where, where Jesus has told me to do this and I've said, no, I'll do it my way? What would it mean for Jesus to be Lord of your life? As you hear that, as you listen to Christmas music this week and you hear the word Lord come out of you, ask yourself and let the Spirit have a conversation with you. Jesus, where do I need to surrender to your Lordship in my life? Let's let Jesus do that work in our souls. Would you pray with me? Let's close our service and order a prayer this morning. We'll be done. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for this Christmas season, for the celebration of the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. Pray, Father, that you would use your words this day to bring challenge and insight, conviction, change, power, strength, renewal to your people pray, Father, that you would help us to live like Jesus is Lord with hope and with humility, with confidence, and Father, with people who live like there is a God who's in charge, and we should listen. I pray, Father, for those sitting in this room right now 
who don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, that you would invite them into your kingdom, that they would cry out in whatever way they can figure, that you would know their heart beyond their words, as they say, Lord, I want you to come and rescue me. I want forgiveness in the name of Jesus. I want to be ready for judgment day. But Father, you would come and rescue them in this moment. Save them, make them a part of your family. We pray, Father, for this Christmas season, that you would fill it with joy, that you would go before us as your people, that we would, as Paul says here, shine as lights in this messed up world. We pray for that power. We pray for that purpose. We pray for your presence in each of your people. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Merry Christmas.